local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. Going to be another toaster out there. Uh, we got a packed show. We're going to dive into the forest industry broadside with sawmill closures all over the place. Forest Minister Doug Donaldson, his opposition critic John Rustad will join us. And Heather Stuka is coming too to talk about uh, her missing son and some work on that front. But first, uh, the Mayor of Kamloops joining us on phone this morning. Good morning, Ken Christian. Well, good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm great. I'm on my way to the Shuswap Buttershed Coalition meeting this morning. Oh, excellent. What's going on out there? Just for a quarterly meeting, give them a bit of an update on uh, some of the things in Kamloops and uh, look uh, about uh, the issue related to zebra mussels and the quality of water in Shuswap Lake. Is, uh, is the zebra mussel issue, uh, is there something going on there, Ken? I know we have the big kind of shield or uh, effort to keep that out. Is that working? Or are we seeing working. some... There's a tremendous effort uh, out in the shoe swamp as well as in the Okanagan. Uh, if we were to have a zebra mussel infestation in British Columbia, which we don't at this point in time, but if we were, it would uh, make a huge uh, impact on our tourism particularly uh, boating and lakefront tourism. Uh, they are a very invasive species and we've seen in Eastern Canada the impact of, uh, of those uh, uh, pests in, in our recreational water systems and uh, so uh, they would uh, just really wreak havoc uh, if they got into BC. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Ken, at council meeting last night, we had another sort of uh, ghost motion from former councillor Donovan Cavers. Uh, this one actually sparked a little bit of back and forth, the idea being that uh, we make transit free for seniors age 65 and over uh, and for non-peak hours during the day. Uh, that was tossed back and forth and then sort of kicked down the road. Your take on this issue, is it, is it worth taking a hard look at or no? Well, you know, it's one of those issues that, that sounds like, you know, a good thing to do and something you want to get on to. And, and I think that was the sentiment around the council chambers. But really, you have to look at uh, free ta transit in the context of, you know, uh, who is who gets it? Uh, what is the means test? Uh, is it just free for seniors or is it free for youth or is it free for the homeless? And then you get into all of the time of day, day of week, routing issues. And uh, so there's an awful lot more to it than uh, simply saying, okay, you know, wave, wave uh, uh, a certain revenue stream away. And uh, so I think that was uh, really where we landed yesterday in terms of, uh, you know, it's a nice idea, but it wasn't something that we had raised when we did a workshop on transit about three weeks ago was something that kind of came out of the blue it's sort of like uh, the council saw a squirrel and uh, so they were sort of heading down that path but uh, you know I think uh, you know when you look at issues related to free transit there are examples in the world but they're generally in places where there's a, a bigger population and uh, more frequent transit service so you know I don't know that uh, in Kamloops if we get all of the car and truck drivers to support free transit uh, in town, that that's really going to increase ridership 
to the extent that it would in a much more densely populated area. Outside this specific motion, Ken, have you heard anything from seniors uh, from the community saying, hey, we need to make transit for seniors free? Is, has that been an issue outside the Cabers motion at all, anywhere? Uh, I had uh, one piece of correspondence from Rick Turner uh, in support of that, and then there was uh, an individual in council chambers yesterday speaking in favor of it, so it's two. All right. Um, on the downtown plan and the Performing Arts Centre, I know that one of the big uh, issues when it comes to taking it to the taxpayers is cost. Uh, it sounds like uh, there's efforts underway to have a non-profit group do some fundraising uh, for the proposed uh, Performing Arts Centre. Tell me a little bit about that. What's that going to look like? Yeah, so uh, we're going to hear from uh, the uh, nonprofit organization next week, actually, on the 18th, and uh, I'm looking forward to that, uh, you know, how they're organized and, uh, you know, who's spearheading it, but it's, it's much more than just fundraising. It's about taking the good work of uh, Ron and Ray Fawcett and the Kelson Group and uh, making, uh, you know, those were sort of Class D estimates and conceptual plans. What we need is actual working plans that we can therefore uh, do a uh, you know good estimate of cost and then uh, look beyond that to how this facility would be operated and then take that to the people so you know we have uh, lots of questions that need to be answered and uh, the arts community is stepping up to answer those questions how much if we can establish uh, a way to fundraise locally to take some of the cost weight off of that. Uh, how, how significant would that be in your mind in turning around at some point and selling this thing to the community? I think it would be very significant. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of this, uh, the public rejected a $90 million uh, effort, so uh, this one is 70, and we already have a donation of in and around 8 to $10 million, and uh, if there could be further corporate donations, plus a lot of grassroots donations from the community that would signal to council that this has broad-based support in our community, then uh, that, to me, is a green light. Uh, you know, right now, uh, I still monitor the uh, feedback that I'm getting on the project, and it, it's still pretty consistently uh, two to one in favor of, uh, you know, going ahead with this. It's pretty obvious that uh, in terms of all the things that the City of Kamloops offers, that we are deficient in the area of arts and culture and that we need to uh, step up our game there, not just for tourism and traveling acts, but to provide venues for uh, our kids that are learning to dance and learning to play the violin and, and uh, you know, learning speech arts and all of those kinds of things. So this is just as much a soccer field or an ice arena for those uh, people involved in the arts. Ken, uh, the Prime Minister has proposed a nationwide ban on single-use plastics. Uh, I know that at the council level there was some talk around banning plastic bags in the community. Uh, there's probably a lot of detail that's still outstanding in this, and, and not to mention election between now and any proposed plan. But uh, in your mind, if we see this, uh, what would be uh, what would be the weight falling on, on local governments here, and how would it change the plastics argument at local government level? Well, I think that it's a great move, and since we had the discussion, uh, you know, that uh, Councillor Bass brought forward and we referred to administration, I've heard from a couple of uh, uh, large corporations that really say 
that they would prefer to have a uh, nationwide or at least a province-wide approach to uh, plastics rather than them having to comply with municipal bylaws in every community that they uh, operate in. If you have companies like a London Drugs or a Canada Tire and that sort of thing, you don't want them to have a certain product in Quinell and a different product in Cranbrook, right? So, uh, you know, I hear that loud and clear from those large corporations and uh, I support uh, a federal and a provincial approach to this. I think it's something that we need to uh, get a handle on, but I don't think we need to do it in a piecework or, or patchy fashion, municipality by municipality. Uh, what impact does it have on the on the current discussion around plastic bags locally? Do you sit back and say, okay, we want to see what the feds do? What do you do there? Uh, we uh, gave this uh, task to our administration, and uh, as I recall, the uh, council schedule, I believe it's coming back to us in the first meeting in July, so we'll have a recommendation from staff then. But looking at best practices, that's really all they've been doing at this point in time. Ken, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time this morning to chat. It's my pleasure, Shane. Thank you. And that was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian touching base on all matters civic because he does every Wednesday after a council meeting here on the Woodford Show. We'll take a quick break on the other side with devastation in the forest industry and sawmills closing almost daily these days. Forest Minister Doug Donaldson will join us. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, as you know, the forest industry absolutely broadsided over the space of just a week or so uh, here in the interior. Uh, Interfor, or sorry, Canfor, curtailing its operations BC-wide, uh, going to shut down its sawmill uh, in Vavenby, 172 workers uh, unemployed next month there. Uh, and then Norboard in 100 Mile House is uh, suspending operations indefinitely. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. 160 jobs on the line there. To delve into uh, uh, how to deal with this, a pleasure welcome to the program this morning the Forest Minister, Doug Donaldson. Good morning, Doug. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm doing fine, thanks. Okay, Doug, let's jump right into this. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is serious stuff. Uh, words like crisis are being thrown around by people like uh, the, the mayor of 100 Mile House and others. Uh, there's job losses, you know, 160 and 170 jobs might not mean much in, say, a major metro area like Vancouver or Victoria, but for communities like 100 Mile House, Vavenby, Clearwater, these are devastating. Um, what are your words to those communities and those workers this morning? Well, our first priority is with the workers and community members. Uh, if you're exactly right on. I, I know how devastating these circumstances could be in small towns I live in a very small town, Hazleton, and we lost our mill, so I witnessed the stress that puts on community members. So as I said, our first priority is with the workers. Uh, we have a community transition response team that's uh, on its way to 100 Mile House and other communities that have been impacted by these kind of closures. Uh, they help uh, workers deal with uh, immediate needs, uh, financial needs, or and then also uh, in developing a plan for each of them around uh, what they'd like to pursue as far as job opportunities in the future. And so we connect them with uh, federally with uh, Services Canada and provincially with WorkBC. We connect with the, the human resources uh, workers in the company and with unions and with uh, local government. And that's what we're doing. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt these are these are huge, huge uh, impacts on small communities. 
This seems to be a traditional dance, though, Doug. I mean, it's great. We're, we're throwing some help to these workers. Fantastic. But uh, this is a traditional dance we've seen over the years over and over again. These transition teams are, are going to these communities and doing this over and over again. Uh, in your mind, uh, how do we move past this sort of usual one, two, three step here? How do we, how do we fix the problems that are plaguing the forest industry so that workers have jobs and don't have to worry about being punted day to day? Well, you're right. It's a traditional dance, and why, that's why I find it very, very disturbing that uh, we knew this was coming. The uh, beetle kill wood was coming to an end. People knew that that was going to happen uh, 10 years ago, and yet the former government did very little on addressing transition for communities. And so I find that very disturbing. Since we've been in government, we've uh, done a coast uh, revitalization initiative on the coast forest sector, and we've started a interior uh, renewal process and that's long overdue so first off we've uh, asked companies to uh, pull together local government union and first nations leaders to on a tsa basis that's a timber supply area a landscape unit basis to come up with a vision for the future uh, we're emphasizing maximizing value out of the fiber that's remains and uh, not maximizing uh, volume and that's important we can do things as a government on those initiatives around mass timber products so you know the the vision process the ability to anticipate this uh was lacking and uh it's long overdue and that's what we're working on uh, we, i believe that forestry has a bright future in small communities in the province uh, we just have to uh, get through this transition period and, and retool and reinvest there's two common factors here uh, that get crop up time and time again. They certainly have for Canfor, uh, they certainly have for Norboard uh, just in the last couple of days. One, log supply constraints, a shortage of supply. They can't get timber. The other is massive costs. Uh, they're saying they need action on both. People in the industry are saying they need action on both. Uh, they don't have time to transition, Doug. They need help now, today, days, weeks. They need something now. How do you do that? What do you do to address those two major issues? Well, uh, again, this problem didn't crop up overnight, and, and it was uh, predicted, and, you know, you could see with the annual level cuts uh, that this was going to happen, uh, and uh, so the, the solutions uh, can't crop up overnight either. But what we're looking at and what we've uh, already developed on the coast, and we're going to be asking for input from a broad uh, sector in the interior, is how do you utilize more timber? How do you get more timber out of the woods, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, timber left behind on landings and, and in the forest after harvesting. We know that we have a limited timber supply in the forest. So considering ecological constraints, how do you uh, get the, the, the remaining volume out in a way that uh, is feasible, affordable, and can be used uh, by, uh, by, by those who want to add value to that timber? So that's something government can do is looking at that. Uh, we also have marketing initiatives as well uh, uh, you know, on mass timber products, uh, the premier announced uh, the rebuild of the uh, of the uh, uh, hospitals. We'll be using mass timber products in Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, as well as the rebuild of uh, the Royal BC Museum. So these are initiatives that government uh, can undertake. They take time, and that's why uh, we're uh, somewhat behind the eight ball here because of the lack of action in the last government. I just got to be uh, forthright on that. Yeah. Uh, politics aside, though, Doug, you're the guy in power now. Your government's in control now. What do you do to drive down costs? Well, uh, some, you know, costs are a function of supply, and uh, we have limited supply in uh, in in the forests uh, because of uh, the beetle killwood coming down. We can do some things around 
making uh, uh, appraisals more efficient, uh, making different systems within government more efficient. But uh, many people point to stumpage, and I, I, I got to say that stumpage uh, reflects the, uh, the the costs of uh, logs, and so. You know, stumpage goes up and, and goes down as log costs go up and down as people are paying the price for the logs. Uh, so, you know, we got to be uh, we got to get a return on that for for the province for the for the provincial asset. But also, we have to be very careful around softwood lumber agreement. I know that's trotted out a lot uh, as a reason we can't do things. But in this period of time, when we're in appeal processes around uh, the softwood lumber unjust tariffs, uh, we have to be very careful with uh, any adjustments we do to stumpage. Bill 22, uh, which recently passed, uh, gives you a certain amount of muscle here. It certainly is uh, being brought up to me by by the mayor of Clearwater uh, saying, hey, listen, on a consultation level, uh, it gives us some kind of power, although it's uncharted territory. When you consider in the aftermath of these, the sale of the timber tenure, in the case of Clearwater, Vavenby, uh, Canfor wants to sell to Interfor for $60 million. The community wants to slow down there, Doug. Uh, give me an idea how Bill 22 plays out in the aftermath of these sawmill closures? Well, Bill 22 is a recognition that uh, the forests are a publicly held asset, uh, not a, a private asset to be uh, traded by private companies. And so the forests are owned by the public in BC, and therefore, uh, when companies decide to uh, buy tenures from each other or to uh, concentrate tenures, uh, there should be a public interest consideration, uh, and we want to know what the intentions are. And the government didn't have that ability before. Uh, again, uh, legislation was brought in in 2004. Here we are 15 years later, and we're finally getting a grip on being able to have a say over public uh, considerations when 10 years have changed hands. So uh, what will be <clears throat> what, what happens is if a, uh, one major licensee wants to buy a tenure from another licensee, uh, that's a public asset, and we want to know uh, public considerations. Have they consulted uh, with uh, local communities about their plans and, and what the local communities think? Have they talked with local First Nations about their plans and what do they think? Have they talked to unions and labour and what do they think? And so that has to be part of the package they bring to me for an approval. It also gives you the power to veto any sale of timber tenure. Uh, are you considering that in the case of, of the Vavenby Sawmill and this proposed sale to Interfor? I haven't seen uh, any proposal on my desk yet uh, regarding the proposed uh, purchase uh, by Interfor of Canfor's tenure, so I can't can't comment on that specific uh, situation. But uh, the more robust package they bring to uh, me, uh, considering uh, public interest, uh, the better chance they'll have of getting approved. In your mind, just to touch on this timber sale, but I mean, again, there's 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 alarm bells being raised in Clearwater about the the sale. Uh, in your mind, Doug, on a timeline perspective, considering Bill 22, is this a sale that can be uh, on your desk in a month or two? Does there need to be more time to go through the process? Give me an idea on the timeline. Well, uh, we've we've said within uh, 120 days we can make those kind of decisions, but it really depends on how uh, much background work uh, the company who's uh, interested in purchasing tenure from another company has done. And so... If they've done uh, a robust job in, in those areas that I just outlined in public interest and talking to unions, getting feedback, and talking to labor, getting feedback, and talking to First Nations, getting feedback, and then talking to communities and getting feedback, then that process can happen, uh, approval or not approval, more quickly. But 
uh, that that's the work that companies have to do. Doug, you've been generous with your time. As always, uh, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. And that was Forest Minister Doug Donaldson discussing the uh, havoc in the forest industry over the last few days with sawmill closures in Vavenby and an indefinite suspension in the Norboard Mill in 100 Mile House. We'll take a quick break, but we're not moving off this story. His opposition critic, the forest critic and BC Liberals, Emily. John Rustad will join us next. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome to the program uh, the opposition critic and uh, a former forest minister in his own right in John Rustad. Good morning, John. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Doing well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Hey, listen, this is a difficult topic. Uh, we, as we know, uh, the forest industry has been a punching bag for a long time now. There's a lot of bad news that is uh, sideswiping that industry. But the last week or so has been, um, to put it lightly, devastating. Uh, Vavenby seeing a sawmill closure, Canfork curtailing across the province. Uh, now 100 Mile House uh, absolutely sideswiped by the news of a sawmill closure in their neighborhood. Uh, John, in a nutshell, uh, just your reaction to that and, and what is going on out there? You know, this is a really tough time uh, for the forest industry and uh, you know I really feel for the workers that are being impacted by this and their families, the communities, uh, the contractors. It's really a, a very challenging situation and it's it's being driven in part by market conditions but it's also being driven by the fact that uh, British Columbia has become the highest cost producer in North America and under those scenarios it's very challenging for, for uh, forest companies to be able to operate in British Columbia. What exactly has been done to drive the costs up? Like where, where, when and where did that happen? Well, it's a, a rather long list of about 17 or 18 different things, but uh, uh, stumpage being the largest one, of course, it's gone up uh, dramatically. It's predicted to go up again here at the beginning of July. Uh, cost structures have gone up. Uncertainty has gone up. And we're in a situation where you know operations that have uh, multiple jurisdictions, so they might have mills in British Columbia and mills in other places in Canada or the U.S. They're taking downtime in their British Columbia mills, or they're looking at closures in the British Columbia mills, not in mills in other jurisdictions. John, as I mentioned off the top, uh, you've been the guy. You've been the forest minister in, in the B.C. Liberal government. Uh, from your expertise here, what needs to be done uh, to try and throw something to this industry and something to these families who are reeling right now? Well, there's just some steps that government needs to take and really should take. I mean, the first is they need to recognize the challenge that the industry is in, and they need to recognize that uh, um, families, uh, the workers, they need some help. Government needs to step up uh, to be able to uh, help families and help communities through this challenging time. The other thing that government needs to do is it needs to understand that competitiveness is a major issue. We need to, to determine what those factors are that are driving up our, our, uh, our costs that are making us uncompetitive and make some adjustments. And there's some immediate steps that government could be taking that could give some relief to the industry. One of the things that's cropped up uh, both in, in Merritt when they lost the Toco mill and now more recently in Vavenby with the Canfor mill shut down is the uh, the timber tenure sale. In this case, it's proposed to go to Interfor for uh, $60 million. I know the community is saying, hey, hey, listen, we need to put the brakes on this. Uh, we're really worried about losing that timber tenure. Uh, as far as that particular issue is a fallout of the sawmill, uh, what are your concerns there, John? Uh, do we need to have some different pros? Do we need to have slow down in those sales or, or no? 
Well, I think the, the key that we need to think about is how do we support communities, uh, whether it's First Nations or non-First Nation communities. And that's one of the reasons why uh, in the early 2000s we did a take-back. Um, we bought tenure uh, from the uh, from the companies. Uh, we created BC Timber Sales. We expanded community forests, and we created First Nation woodland tenures. Those are all tools that help to keep wood within the community and keep the activity going and potentially support operations. And so, um, you know, government should look at, if it possible, expanding those kind of programs. The approach that government has taken, which is uh, what's been called Bill 22, uh, is basically an attempt by government to expropriate volume without compensating companies. And that uh, is fundamentally uh, undermining the foundation of our forest industry. What role do you think Bill 22 is going to take now? I mean, it's relatively untested. I know uh, Clearwater Mayor Merlin Blackwell telling me that uh, it gives them potentially some muscle, some 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 consultation. But uh, he said, "Listen, Shane, we're on new ground with this thing." So, uh, from your perspective, what role does Bill 22 play in the aftermath? Well, it's hard to know at this point. Uh, I actually think government will probably try to play nice on this deal because they want to show that that uh, the bill can work. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see exactly, you know, what the goals are. Um, it's, like I say, it's, it is unknown territory at this point. Uh, government uh, could implement very strict measures. It could do something very simple. Uh, it's wide open, and it's, quite frankly, left to the very subjective for the minister. There isn't really anything laid out in terms of how something will proceed, which is what creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty. In your mind, what role does First Nations play? I mean, we talk about Bill 22 from a, a community perspective, from a local government perspective, uh, but what role do First Nations play in potentially in that process under this legislation? Well, I think uh, they they will have a voice. They will have a say just like other communities do uh, with this. And, you know, First Nations, and I, I was the former minister associated with, uh, with First Nations for a number of years, and, um, they want more volume. They want to be able to participate uh, in the forest industry. Um, government could look at it, this as a tool for, for doing that. But like I say, the approach, if government wants to do those objectives, they should step up to the plate and do a take-back like we did. Um, you know, the, the way the approach that they're taking on this is, is quite frankly, um, it just undermines and uh, undermines the, the value and quite frankly, I don't know how companies will make investments in British Columbia in the future with so much uncertainty. Rewind to, what, a month, month and a half ago or so, uh, the NDP government announced, as you know, John, uh, an effort to go into the different timber supply areas and find unique ways to, to do a renewal of the forest industry. Uh, that particular program is in its infancy. We don't know how it will proceed or what the result will be, but uh, in light of a week of brutal news in the forestry front, how do you think that works with, meshes with, or impacts this effort to renew the forestry by the province? Well, I think there's there's no question um, the challenges that we have today w- should change the approach that government is taking. Uh, they should actually take a pause uh, and recognize that the industry is hurting and find ways to be able to help industry through this period of time, find ways to be able to help the communities and workers through this time, as opposed to adding additional uncertainty uh, and creating creating challenges. When you're in a situation where industry is doing well, um, you can go in and work with industry, work with unions and First Nations communities and develop the plan around around that uh, that shift. When industry is struggling, um, 
you've got to have your focus on trying to get people back to work. There's people that uh, and, and contractors that have come and approached me and said they haven't had consistent work now since Christmas. Uh, it's very hard when you're thinking about payments, uh, thinking about keeping staff on, working through all those sort of issues when you have that kind of uncertainty. In your mind, John, I mean, uh, the 100-mile house mayor telling us yesterday that this is a crisis, a flat-out crisis. Uh, in your mind, can you rescue, resuscitate the forest industry, or is it over the precipice now? Well, I think I think we are facing a crisis, quite frankly. Uh, I think part of it is has been driven by government policy. Part of it, of course, is, uh, is some of the market conditions. But, for example, in, uh, uh, in the situation we have in 100-mile house with Norboard, the biggest challenge they have is they can't get they can't get wood. Um, there is a tremendous amount of wood that has been impacted by wildfires from 2017. They can't access that wood, and where they can access it, the price point is too high for it to be for them to be able to operate. And so that's the primary factor that's driving their operations. So there's there's a number of steps that need to be taken by government to settle down the situation to try to smooth through this and help the uh, help industry through this transition that is going to be happening. In your mind, I know you guys are watching what the government's doing carefully. In your mind, uh, what are you looking for from the Premier? What are you looking for from Forest Minister Doug Donaldson as immediate next steps in the days ahead here? Well, I think the first thing they should do uh, is actually have some respect for the forest industry and recognize the challenges that are going through and make a commitment to step up to the plate. They need to take this seriously. They need to come out and support communities and workers um, through this period of time. They need to do everything they can to try to drive down costs and, and help our industry to become competitive. And these aren't steps that need to be taken over the next two or three years. These are steps that be taken, need to be taken over the next few weeks. John, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking a few moments. I know this is a, a tough topic and uh I know firsthand from talking to some of the people involved, uh, the impacts in these communities, which is, is nothing short of devastation. But uh, thanks for a few minutes this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Shane. And uh, like I said, my heart really goes to the workers and the families and uh, the communities. This is a very challenging time. And this is the time where government needs to step up and to be able to help this industry through these tough times. That was opposition forest critic and the Chaco Lakes BC Liberal MLA, John Rustad, discussing the absolutely devastating news rolling across the forest industry in just the last handful of days. Mill closures in Vavenby, mill closures in 100 Mile House, and Canfor curtailing its operations province-wide. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk to Heather Stuka. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, it's been one year, four months since Ryan Stuka disappeared at Sun Peaks. Uh, went to a house party early in the hours of the morning, was spotted leaving that party to go home, has not been seen since. As you can imagine, that provided uh, a devastating news to his family who've been searching for some sign of him ever since. Uh, to date, there's been no resolution in that search. His mother, Heather Stuka, uh, who has been uh, just a, a force to be reckoned with in the search for her son, has now teamed up with other members of families uh, who are in similar situations dealing with life-altering tragedy as they too seek answers for their missing loved ones. Uh, and has now launched uh, what's called the Freebird Project uh, to try and offer some kind of help. 
uh, want to bring her on and talk about this and, and get a sense of, uh, of whether there's any sign uh, on, on the search for her own missing son. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the program this morning, Heather Stuka. Good morning, Heather. How are you? Uh, apparently, we don't have Heather yet. Heather, are you there? Yes. Oh, there you are. Thank you for coming on this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. Um, as I was saying, it's been, uh, before we get into the Freebird Project, it's been a year and four months since uh, since your son Ryan vanished at Sun Peaks. Uh, I just want to get started by asking you if there's any any new clues, any new signs, any news in that front at all to date, Heather, or no? Uh, you know what? I, I, I wish I could I could update and give people new information, but as of yet, we are no further ahead than I, I believe that we were when we showed up. February uh, 18th in some peaks. There's just been, I don't know if it's stalled. I mean, we've done everything we can from our perspective as parents. We go up every single month. We conduct searches. You know, we, we bring awareness to Ryan's case as often as we can. Um, but it's like we're missing that puzzle piece and we just can't seem to, to find it no matter how hard we look. So mm-hmm. nothing to report at this point in time. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I know that this is a, a, a gaping open wound for you and your family. I can only imagine what you guys have been going through. Uh, and I am sure resolution would be, would be something that's really welcomed. Uh, in that effort, uh, you are, are not alone. Uh, there is a, a small groups of families across this country, across this world, uh, who are dealing with a very similar gaping wound and trying to find answers to their missing loved ones. You've joined forces with some of those families for the Freebird Project. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. You know, within the first couple of, of weeks after Ryan went missing, you know, your your mind goes to what what you think might be an inevitable outcome. And so we talked about, you know, things to do for Ryan's legacy. And, you know, we talked about snowboarding because he loved it and rugby, which he loved. And, and all of those things are fantastic and, and wonderful, but it wasn't something that just really um, appealed to me um, on that soul side. And I just thought, what, what can I do in order to, um, to further Ryan's legacy um, and, and help people just in general? And I just thought, you know, I, I looked back at those very first days and felt so hopeless and so lost. We didn't know where to turn. Um, we didn't know who to call. We, we, we had no idea. There's no there's no handbook for that. And so um, there was very little information that that we could get on what we were supposed to do next. All I knew is that Scott and I couldn't go home. Um, you know, Ryan was still out there, and we we just couldn't we couldn't abandon him. And so you know, from that we just thought, well, what can we do to help other families? And we thought, when when the time is right, when we find Ryan, you know, um, then then we can move on to that that next stage or that that next process of, in the journey. Of grieving, and um, and of course, you know, we're here 14 months later with really no no sign of of when this is going to end for us. But in the meantime, we have connected with this family, um, Tammy Neron and Kate Sinclair. Their uh, brother and brother-in-law went missing in a, a plane crash, and so they had done extensive aerial search, um, and they they came to their conclusion last September 10th. And we've been in contact. They've they've helped uh, do some other command centers, and we thought, how could we um, combine those forces? We have extensive ground uh, search. They have the aerial search, and and go forward uh, and use, utilize those resources together to provide assistance to other families, like almost like a first aid kit. Um, have a site where where people could come and go. And it sort of started like that. We were in talks for quite some time about what 
um, they wanted and what we we wanted to do. And surprisingly, they're very uh, much in line together. And so we thought it would be a perfect fit for both of us. I imagine in some ways it must feel uh, in the immediate aftermath, the phone rings, uh, you get the news, um, and it must feel a little bit like you're drowning, sensory overload, you're getting all this stuff, you're, you're dealing obviously with the emotion of it all, right. uh, you want answers, uh, the logistics of us, all that stuff. It must just be incredibly overwhelming. Is part of the power of the Freebird Project for a family that is suddenly thrown into that situation to have um, a resource there, not only for the logistics of like, hey, we've got some ways we can help you search-wise, but the emotional support of having other families immediately there by your side that have been through that process? You know, I think, I mean, absolutely that's true. Every journey is going to be different for anybody that has somebody that goes missing, whether they go willingly, unwillingly, or unknowingly. There's always somebody left behind that wants to know what's happened to them. And, I, you know, every journey is going to be different. With Dominic's um, case, it was a plane crash with Ryan. It's like he's virtually vanished into thin air, which obviously probably did not occur. But um, there's lots of people. There's people in vulnerable sections that um, that will have gone missing. And I can't tell you what that journey is going to be. It's, it's unique to each and every person. However, I will tell you that um, the, that we are very aware of those first moments, that, that feeling, that phone call, that notification that you get that turns your whole world upside down. I never thought we were going to be immune to tragedy. I mean, that's just how, how life plays out. But of all the things that I would have thought would have happened uh, or occurred in our family, I never thought that um, having a, a child go missing would be, would be it. And then to, to be on this journey for such a long period of time. So ours is, is different, but I know that initial feeling. And if we can help other families um, navigate through that, then I, I feel like there's a purpose in, in this. Yeah. The uh, Freebird Project, you can find them on Facebook. I understand there's a website that's in the works. Tell me a little bit about that one. When will that go live if it hasn't already? Um, it, it should come live in the next month or so. We're working hard on getting it. And again, it's almost like that first aid kit. So where can families go to access some of this information? Not necessarily anything that they'd have to contact us for if that's not um, in their realm. If they don't want to, to take that on, they could go to the, this site and they can access some of the the programs that are available to families, there is uh, federal funding for families, and I don't think most parents or loved ones realize that they can get, you know, most of them won't won't go back to work right away. They're they're in this process of, of trying to find their loved one. And so having those sort of resources, what drones are available, what um, dog or search and rescues are available in that those areas, what topological maps are available to them so that they can download and have access forms things like that for their command centers. So we want to be able to provide that, but also to provide um, our, our, I guess, expertise in that area, uh, knowing that will be as limited as it is. But um, if, if people want us to come and help set up command centers, help them get going in the first couple of days, that we would proudly go and volunteer to help uh, other families. We only have about a minute left. I just want to ask you really quickly, I know this has been a, a grueling exhausting, emotional journey for you and, and so far no end in sight. How are you and your, and your family doing? You guys doing okay? You know what? We're, we're tired. I think that my girls have been doing amazing. I'm, I'm surprised that they have adjusted and they're so resilient as they are. I, I There's no way for us to get around it. We have to go through it. I wish I could curl up on the floor some days, but that that isn't where I'm going to be able to stay. And so the world will go on without me, whether I lie down or I'm kneeling or I'm standing. And so 
you just stand up, embrace it, and go, this this is our journey thus far, and this is what we have to do, regardless of whether we want to or not. Heather, I know this is incredibly hard for you to do, and, and you're in a process uh, that, that is fairly awful, and I wish and pray that you guys get the resolution you deserve. I, thank you so much for for a few minutes this morning and, and shedding a little bit of light on, on an important topic, despite the, the burden that this must, uh, must uh, impact you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Heather Stuka, mother of Ryan Stuka. He vanished uh, last February in Sun Peaks, and as you heard uh, in this interview, uh, still no closure, no sign of, of what may have happened to Ryan. The search effort continues as they've uh, engaged in what's called the Freebird Project. Website coming soon. You can find them on Facebook. A group of families dealing with missing loved ones who can help support each other in the logistics of a search as well. That's it for today's edition of The Woodford Show. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.